life. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, just uh, announcements. We're still on hiatus from the regular midweek and Friday. Appreciate your prayers for uh, that trip and my family. Uh, especially my dad who was ill. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are awesome, that you are great. You are the way maker. I pray that you would put in us a heart that will go your way, that will choose you, that will trust you, that will believe what you have said, that what you've promised you are able to perform. And I pray, Lord, that we would just glory in you. We would praise you. We would lay down our lives in submission before you, choosing to give you ourselves because you have given yourself for us through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the power of it to change us, that you do transform us. Lord, you do take these dead bones and you make them live. And you make those who were dead in sins your army uh, that praises you and glorifies you. And love that picture, Lord, of, of the worship team leading the way with Jehoshaphat into the battle that was already won because the battle is the Lord's. That we don't need to fight because you've won. And I thank you that you give us the armor of God through the Holy Spirit. You give us your wisdom and you give us one another to encourage, to exhort, to rebuke, to help and encourage one another on this road that we're walking with Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for this time and pray you'd speak to our hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Romans chapter six if you want to turn there. It's funny looking back upon our childhood, realizing how limited our understanding was. There were things we just didn't think about. I, I dug out an old newspaper clipping from 1984. I was nine years old at a school excursion, decorating windows of the courthouse in El Cajon, which is the city I grew up in. And I was asked, I don't remember being asked, but I was asked, what happens here? And uh, in the paper, I described the courthouse as, an office where they talk to a lot of people and figure out situations. So in other words, I had no idea. Um, it went over my head. I, I didn't, I, we called it the courthouse or yeah, something like that. But I didn't think that in this building, there are judges and lawyers and courts and jurors. And I didn't know that the upper levels of the building that had the narrow windows, that was a jail. That's where the jail was. And I thought, you know, as a kid, I painted a window. I had no idea what happened in the building. As an adult, I went to jury duty there once. But even right now, I remain ignorant about a lot of things that actually happen in that building. I, I have grown in maturity because I'm older now, and I know how to, if I was in San Diego, I could drive you there. But I still have, I don't know the departments in that building. I don't know who is in those offices and what they actually do. And I suspect that there are heads of departments that work in that building that have no idea what the other departments do, and they've never been to those top levels where the prison is. So I believe that we all fundamentally, we need to grow in the basic concepts of the gospel. As kids, we can spell grace, like we can spell the word. We at a point can recognize the tune Amazing Grace and maybe sing along. 
And then it comes to a point where we can define grace or even give an example of grace, but it might be a long time until we learn to give grace to others and realize that we need grace. Romans, it dives into the gospel of grace. There's so much we have yet to understand and apply to our lives. So we can be like children, ignorant children when it comes to God grace, because it's not of this world. It's something that we need to hear again and again and be immersed in it to realize how much we need it and to apply it to our lives. It's, it's a foreign concept to us and we need it explained to clear away our assumptions, our confusion, our inaccurate generalizations we can make. So Paul, he explains a purpose of the law was to make transgressions increase, to make our guilt really obvious to us. Romans 5:20 it says, "Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Sin reigned in death, yet by faith in Jesus grace now reigns through righteousness to eternal life by faith. So we move into our passage in Romans 6 verse 1 in response to that, grace being super abundant. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Wherever Paul went and in himself as well, he encountered people who were resistant to grace, that undeserved good standing in the sight of God because they saw it being soft on sin or that it encouraged lawlessness. So these people who felt that way, that they leaned into legalism that imposed requirements in addition to the gospel on people to be seen as righteous before God and be saved. So these were the people that are saying, well, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's, that's how you're saved. Like it's fine to do those. It's fine to believe, but you must do more for salvation. Now others didn't understand grace at all. They used it as an excuse to indulge the flesh and sin. And this led to antinomianism, which means against the law. So this is the belief that Christians are, are not under the law of Moses and we're also under no obligation to any moral law, even though J Jesus gave us commands like love one another as I have loved you. That would guide our morality, wouldn't it? Loving God with all our heart, loving others as Jesus loves us. So Paul plays the devil's advocate here. He's saying if where sin abounds, grace abounds more, abounds more why not keep living in sin? It's a win-win for the sinner. It's like we sin without guilt. God's grace is abundant because there's abundant sin. And now God's getting more glory because he is dealing with that sin. And so he shuts the door on this distortion. He says, should we, dis should we continue in a lifestyle that delights in sin? Absolutely not. No way. God's abundant grace was never an excuse, an invitation or license to sin. In Romans 5, Paul established that Adam sinned, all humanity sinned in him, 
and sin brought death because of sin in the world. Death reigned. And that ultimately resulted in the death of Jesus who died for sinners. Sin was imputed to us by the law. It was credited to us. It condemned us. And now we've been born again through faith in Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, Christians who trust in him also died to sin. When he died, we died to sin. Presently, sin is still running rampant in the world. It's not like sin is dead to you. You are dead to it. You are dead to sin because sin no longer has dominion or rule over you. It's like a person who's under contract to work 38 hours a week who dies is free from his obligation to his employer, right? That contract is broken because his life is over. He is not held responsible to go to work anymore because he's dead. He's dead to that agreement because we died to died to sin and Christ lives in us. We don't have to meet sin's demands anymore. Any who justify continue to live in sin because of grace is ignorant of what Jesus has accomplished and how Christians are saved. So verses three and four, it speaks of what occurs spiritually when we're born again, when we repent of our sin, put our trust in Jesus, we are justified. We are credited with righteousness in the sight of God by grace through faith. In that moment, uh, we are in Christ. We are baptized in his life. We're immersed into his life even as we're baptized by immersion in water. And Paul uses the picture of water baptism by immersion to point to a spiritual reality of us in Christ dying to sin, Jesus being buried in the grave and then resurrection from the dead, the beginning of a new life. When we're born again, Jesus was not resuscitated. He did not have air breathed into him and he, he came to, and his wounds still remain. No, he was glorified. He was resurrected from the dead. So there was a complete change that happened in the body of Jesus where he rose incorruptible, immortal. And this is the change that has taken place in the heart of every believer who is born again. We now have the spirit of God living within us. It's kind of like if you had a car and it had a seized engine to remove that engine, remove the petrol tank and convert it to an electric car. Now the car is powered by a new fuel source, trying to fuel an electric car with petrol. That would be pointless. It would be hazardous, right? It still has the little, the little door you can open and you put the nozzle in and you just see the petrol hitting the ground. You're like, this isn't good. This is bad. This isn't the way that you drive this car anymore. It's a, it's new inside. It's now powered through electricity. So we're called to obey Jesus rather than sin. We're not, we are dead to sin and therefore under no obligation under, has no authority over us anymore. Verse five, for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin for he who has died has been free from sin. So all who have been joined to Jesus by faith in him, we have this assurance of being raised to new life with him. And this new life is not just like someday I will have this new life. No, that's ours today in Jesus because we're born again for Christians. Our old man was crucified with him dead to sin. 
the old man. It's not your dad. Some people refer to the dad as the, the old man. It's not your dad. It's described as our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Uh, the man that's described as without strength, ungodly sinners, God's enemies. Now notice as we read this chapter and those that follow, there is no mention of a sin nature. I think that's an interpretive lens that distorts what Paul is saying here. It can lead to error. Being born again was not just the addition of a new nature in to the old one that hangs around. No, the old man is dead, done away with dead to sin. Our old man marked by sin, spiritually crucified, dead as a doornail. If it's crucified, it does not come off that cross because it's dead. It's true for Jesus as well. He did not come down from the cross. He died on the cross. So with Jesus, as so is our old man, that the body of sin might be done away with. No one survives crucifixion. The purpose of Jesus dying was so that we could be free from being slaves to sin. It says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Death severs our obligation to those who had authority over us in Australia, citizens were required to, to vote, right? Whenever there's an election to submit annual tax returns, even if what you make doesn't meet the threshold, you still need to notify the ATO with a non lodgement advice. When you're die, when you die, you're under no obligation to vote anymore, to file taxes. You're beyond the laws of Australia to fine you for non-compliance. It's similar in marriage. We make those vows till death. Do we part a spouse who dies is now free of that obligation of that union. When we came to Christ, we recognized our sinfulness, our need for a savior. We repented of sin. We put our faith in Christ. So spiritually what happened at that moment, the person we were who was enslaved to sin condemned for eternity died. We have been born again and we're raised to new life. And because we are united with Christ in death, sin has no power or dominion over us anymore. We now have a new master, Jesus. He paid for us with his own blood. And it used to be that sin had us under its thumb. It was pressuring us like, kind of like a boss who we caved to please by lying and fudging the numbers. But we've died to that abusive codependent relationship we had. And now we walk with Jesus. Now we're alive and please him. Verse eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead dies. No more death. No longer has dominion over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he's continuing along this logical progression. He's saying, since we died with Christ, we believe we will live with him. He is alive and we live through him. He is our life. He gives us eternal life and peace with God that we enter into by faith in him today. Jesus said himself in revelation 118. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Death has no dominion over him anymore. And 
He's been raised to the dead. And so have we, we've been raised from the dead in him. So the death Jesus died, it was not for himself, but for the sins of the world placed upon him. He yielded up his life to overcome sin and death with eternal life and grace demonstrated by his resurrection. And the writer of Hebrews emphasizes this, that Jesus died once for all. He didn't need to like the priests under the law under who would make a a sacrifice for their own sins. And then the sins of the people, but he, he obtained eternal redemption for sinners by his sacrifice in Hebrews 10, eight through 10. It says previously saying sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin. You did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, he takes away the first that he may establish the second by that will. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So this is God's will for believers to be sanctified by the sacrifice of Jesus. In this passage, it talks about it in past tense, something that happens at one time. It's some sanctification means to be set apart. Now that happened at our conversion. We were set apart from the power and penalty of sin brought into good standing with God as his children, but it's also continuing. It's progressing. We're in the process of being sanctified, being made more like the image of Jesus as we walk in obedience to God. And ultimately we will be sanctified fully when we are in the eternal state. So Jesus, he died to sin. Now he lives to God. So we died to sin. We live to God. Jesus died. He's risen. And that's the pattern of our new life. We now live for God because we have died to sin. So he says, this is the conclusion. Then likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So something, there's some things we need to know and we need to believe. So we know because God's told us that our old man has died to sin. And we know that Jesus has risen from the dead and he lives. So based upon these facts, we reckon or consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That word reckon, it means to count credit or consider. We're counted as righteous by God through Jesus by faith in him. And we also ought to count ourselves dead to sin. So the reckoning is twofold dead to sin, alive to God. Now for some people, this reckoning, it's a bit of a mind game that they play to muster up some resistance to sin. When this is the reality that God's telling us how it is, it's as different as that conversion that takes place in that car, even more so because it's done by the power of God. I read this uh, really good quote by a missionary. It mirrors my own experience. Uh, And I just thought I would read you a little line from it because it's really valuable to understand this and how often we, like when you stand in front of the petrol pumps, you have a choice, right? 91, 95, 98. Hmm. Which one is best for my car that I'm driving? Should I put diesel in? You know that each one of those has good points. It's good for a particular engine, but not for every engine. And the decision you make putting diesel in a regular petrol car, big mistake. Probably you'll only make one time because your car is not going to run after that. So this reckoning 
knowing what we know now, what he's told us, he says, reckoning is now no longer a desperate attempt to convince myself of something, which all the facts of experience appear to contradict. It is an attitude of simple trust in the facts stated in the word of God. I had heard so much about consecration and surrender. It is little wonder I had come to assume that the way of deliverance from sin and a fruitful Christian living lay in my consecration and earnestness. I now see in a vital way that the important thing in sanctification as in justification is not what I do, but what God has done in Christ. I rest in his work. I'm like right on that is, that is spot on, but it's ironic. We can receive God's grace for our salvation and we manhandle it to think that it depends upon me that I would be sanctified. That it, it all is now my responsibility that he empowers me to do when it's what he did. It's who Jesus is and what he accomplished on Calvary because now I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God. That's what he is the one who sanctifies me. We can rest in what Jesus has done. Now there's a lot of earnest Christians who still struggle with sins. They try to see themselves as dead to sin, but sin still seems to grip them. They can't seem to shake it. And they feel like they're fighting a losing battle that Jesus Christ supposedly won and become discouraged. Some either doubting their salvation or they're resigned to a life of bondage to sin, depressed without hope, knowing that they, they have sin that's persistent, that they can't shake. Now, while a life marked with habitual sin, it may indicate a person's not truly born again. Ignorance of what Jesus did on the cross and making us dead to sin, that can hinder us from making wise decisions to say no to sin. When you make a decision based upon the facts that God has freed us from sin. He's given us glad obedience to him. And what we know cannot save us from hell. Why do we think after being saved that we can deliver ourselves from habitual sin by our efforts? Right? How can, how can we save ourselves? Whether it's sin that was leading to death or sin that is besetting us that we can't shake. It's in reckoning ourselves dead into sin in agreement with the facts of what's happened, what Jesus has accomplished now alive to God. That is when the new life begins. When you embark upon like, wow, this is what being born again is really like. Romans six twelve. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law, but under grace before Christ sin was our master that ruled us. Sin really is all about pleasing self without regard of God or others. It's just a very basic premise. But because of what Jesus has done by his death and resurrection, since we're in Christ, we are not to allow sin to rule over us. It's like he is our king. We can deny sin's demands. Think about Joseph. He's in prison. He was under the jailer's authority. He was given a job in the prison. He was there a couple years before Pharaoh called him out of the prison 
and he gave him a new job, a new role, right? To uh, follow God's leading in delivering the land in preparation for that famine that was coming. Now at that stage, now that he's second in command to Pharaoh, what authority did the jailer have over Joseph? None. Or as much as Joseph was willing to give him, he could have contacted Joseph and said, Hey man, you owe me a favor. Remember we were in, I had you locked up. I gave you that good job. You owe me. He's like, what? (laughs) I don't owe you anything. I don't even need to speak to you. I am over you. It would be stupid for Joseph to be loyal to the jailer instead of Pharaoh. When Pharaoh gave him his job and remember, even as a slave, Joseph did not give into his master's wife's advances for sex because God was his master. So because God was his master, he said to the woman, no. And he left her presence. It's foolish for Christians to remain loyal to sin instead of God. We are dead to sin. We're now alive to God. That's what Jesus did for us. So instead of presenting our bodies as instruments or weapons to sin, we're to present ourselves to God to do his will. We've been born again by faith in Jesus. We present ourselves as living sacrifices to God led by the Holy spirit rather than the lusts of the flesh. Paul wrote this in Galatians five sixteen. He says, I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You know, if the flesh was sinful in itself, Jesus could not have been righteous. The point is when we walk in the spirit, we will not be sinning. We will be not be, not be led to sin by the Holy spirit. He always leads us into righteousness. When we were born again by faith in Jesus, the Holy spirit imparted new life to us and regenerated us. Baxter said this, the new life, which then came to you as a regenerating infusion is now meant to become a sanctifying suffusion. So we've been regenerated. We've been changed, but suffusion, it means kind of like when you are making tea and you put that tea bag in, you pour the the water and over time it begins to change the color. Well, that's how we are to change. It, It is a change that's happened, but also it's continuing to change because we're sanctified unto the Lord. So God's given us the ability to choose him freely over sin and over self, over the flesh that were these bodies we're still living in on the basis of his love and grace. And God's desire is for us to be holy, sanctified inside and out. It says that in one Thessalonians five 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of us, we are sanctified and to be sanctified holy. So we know the old man is dead to sin. We've been spiritually raised with Christ. We have peace with God. Our lives are now ruled by his grace. By grace, we're saved. By God's grace, we're accepted in the beloved. We have redemption in his blood, forgiveness of sins. By grace through faith, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not under the law, but under grace. God's grace is super abundant to save us. And God's grace is also abundant to sanctify us. 
and change us for good. Now we are creatures of habit in many ways. Years ago, my friend in the States bought a Tesla and he caught himself driving to a petrol station on a couple of occasions, just out of habit. He would drive by and, and then he'd see those long queues and he's like, you know what? That used to be me. And he, he felt good about that. He could just drive home and plug it in. Now there are sinful things that you say, you think you do out of habit, out of training, out of conditioning from cues in the world or your own flesh. It came to us with demands we couldn't refuse. It wore us out with its persistence, lies and threats. We were in this cruel relationship where we were dominated and beat into submission by sin. We could put up resistance for a little while, but we would break down. Could anyone identify with that? Like I totally can. I'm like, okay, I've been in that relationship. It's bad. It's like when I moved house, there were times where I drove the wrong way to go back to my old house rather than going to my new house. But then there was a point where I said, hold on. That's not my address anymore. I know I live over here now. So knowing that my address had changed, it gave me the ability to make wise choices on the roads to lead me to the bright destination. We know we are saved. We know we are going to heaven because of the thing Jesus did in saving us. We now are led by his grace to do good rather than sin. And we have this new life in Jesus now. And we know sin is incompatible with this new life. Just like petrol is a hazardous uh, fire hazard in an electric car. We know it's wrong to put diesel in a petrol car. We know these things and it totally changes our decisions, doesn't it? Well, knowing that you're dead to sin and alive to God, you have a choice that you'd never had before. You can choose God and you can choose to say no to sin. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In the first 12 verses, Paul spoke about habitual sin Here he talks about sinning here and there. It's like, it's one thing to, to be in sin, to have a life marked with the delight of sin and continuance in sin. But what about now? Should I sin here and there intentionally since we're not under the law, but under grace? And he's like, of course not. No, we should not. He shares a principle here that we are slaves to the one that you obey. As slaves of sin, people were being led to death. And in a general sense, obedience to God leads to righteousness, right? We know it's not by our works that we're done by according to his mercy. He saves us. He's purchased us with his blood. He set us free from sin. He's adopted us as our as his children. So we're not to serve sin any longer, but God who's redeemed us. You know, when we choose sin, it shows how little we think of God. It exposes us, uh, sinful parts in us. I remember God. Uh, so in one Samuel t- two twenty nine, he rebuked the priest Eli. 
He says, you have kicked at God's sacrifices because you've honored your sons more than me. You know, your sons are doing evil, but you're not restraining them. So kicking at God, kicking at his sacrifice through the prophet, Nathan, David understood the gravity of his sin with Bathsheba and killing of Uriah to Samuel 12, 10. It says, this is what Nathan said to him. Now, therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite to be your wife. So we're like the sword in my house. That seems bad, but worse despising God. He's like, you have been hating me. You've hated me by what you did. You're showing loyalty to sin. What did David do? He confessed his transgression. He repented. He surrendered to God. That's how we can do right after doing wrong. We repent when it's brought to our attention. When God convicts us, we repent of it and we don't do it again. So help us God. Paul was grateful. He says, my, my Christian readers, you were once slaves of sin, but from the heart, you obeyed the doctrine that have you have been given of being saved through faith in Jesus. Now a form, it's a mold, right? You, you form concrete. You have a cast object where you pour molten metal in that it takes on the shape of whatever it's put into, whatever it's put into it. So by Jesus, we are born again. We've received the Holy spirit and God had provided that form of doctrine that righteousness apart from the law that God transforms us from within as we yield to him in faith. And this is now reflected in reality with the Holy spirit guiding and leading us. So being set free from sin, choosing to walk in the righteous pattern of Jesus and they remained humble. So Paul's like, I'm so glad that you guys get it. You understand, but he's making it simple for them. And he's using these illustrations so they can understand spiritually what's actually happened. And we need to understand this too, that they wouldn't become proud and arrogant and think that they have been justified or sanctified because of their efforts. But like those servants in the parable, it said, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. So sin for those children of God becomes something to avoid that we say no to and finding a delight in serving and obeying God instead. Verse 19 Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The, the picture of the, the Romans or his Paul's hearers being slaves to sin. That was very accurate. The relationship we share with God is more nuanced. However, it's not a perfectly accurate example because God doesn't put us in bondage, but he frees us, right? Um, we didn't have a choice to be in bondage to sin because we sinned in Adam. 
We chose sin thereafter, but God has chosen us and we have chosen him. It's a, it's a slightly different picture, but he's saying just to make sure you guys understand uh, obedience to a master is mutually exclusive. If you're a, if you are obeying sin, well, you're being a slave to sin. If you're obeying God, you are choosing to serve God. And, uh, so these were people who like us, they were once given over to sin lawlessness that led to more lawlessness. They didn't just stay. They, they increased their lawlessness. They pursued sin like a thirsty person gulps down water. They did things and said things that were made them ashamed and that were leading them to death. And so he says, just like you used to pursue sin, like you would present your body to sin, present yourself before the Lord to do good, to be a slave of righteousness for holiness. Like you used to go get drunk and fight instead, be filled with the Holy spirit, speak peace and truth in your right mind. Like present your body to God as you have before to even to sin instead of sneaking off to spend time with prostitutes, spend time openly with God and with people in the church. Like be intentional about serving God with your body and with your mind and with your time, with your resources. And then he says, guys, what benefit did sin ever bring you? Where was it leading you to death? A person who knows that they will have an anaphylactic reaction to eating shellfish. What will they do? They will avoid eating shellfish because they ate it once and they got really, really sick. So they know something, right? I know I cannot eat that thing. And they don't even need the power of the Holy spirit. They can say, I'm not eating those prawns. I'm not eating anything that touched those prawns because it could make me sick. He's like, guys, think about it. Where was sin leading you? What grip did it have on you? The things that just shamed you that it led you to do. Don't go after that anymore because you know, you are dead to sin because you know what Jesus has done for you. Choose him, be a slave to righteousness, present yourself to him to do good. Sin can be so deceptive. It looks attractive. It looks exciting to our flesh, even though it's going to make us sick to our stomachs with guilt. Remember what you said the last time that you binged on food or porn or pills or alcohol and you, or, or outbursts of anger. And you said, you know, I'm horrified what's happened. I'm never doing that again. What happened? Hmm. That resolve did not last forever. Over time, your resolve eroded you forgot how you felt when you were so ashamed by what you said and did. You returned like a dog to his vomit, a fool repeating its folly. We need more than resolutions. We need to be dead to sin. And guess what? Jesus has done that for us. We are dead to sin and we are now made alive to God. We are born again and we are to present ourselves to God as his servants. We serve him. Now we continue to live in these bodies with propensities to sin, habitual sin, but we are given us the strength in God to walk wisely. As it says in two Corinthians 10 and notice the things that are happening in the mind here. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So God's given us understanding of a spiritual reality. That's to change the way we think where we can say, because a lot of times before you do something, you think about doing it, right? There's a connection between the things we think and the things we choose to do. You know, I think I'm running low on petrol. So we go to the petrol station. You know, I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling this, or I'm thinking that, or you see something that provokes a fleshly response in you and you choose to pursue it right? There were choices made all along the way. And God gives us the strength and the wisdom through his spirit who indwells us, who's with us and never forsakes us to say that idea, that thought, it is now in prison and I'm throwing away the key. That bondage can be gone through the power of Jesus. So we were sinners rushing to death, but God has saved us by faith in Jesus that last bit, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you are born again, Christian, you have been set free from sin since you have died to sin in Jesus. And as the death and resurrection of Jesus has led to the salvation of innumerable multitudes, so we have our fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. We are assured of justification, sanctification, future glorification with him on the basis of Jesus and his merit, what he has accomplished by his grace. We send the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life with Jesus. Not Jesus way up there sometime in the future. Life with Jesus now. The abundant life he promises to all who love him. So since our souls are purified in him, we have been clothed in his righteousness. We're no longer slaves of sin. God has set us apart for himself. And by his grace, we willingly present ourselves to serve and obey him rather than embracing sin. This is the reality here in Galatians 2.20 This is the reality for a born again Christian. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life, which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Knowing Jesus, knowing what Jesus has done for us, we can know we are dead to sin. We are alive to God and let's choose to walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this just exceptional, awesome truth of the gospel that we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. And I pray that the implications of that reality would be borne out in each one of our lives with the decisions that we make, that we choose to not go back under the yoke of bondage anymore, either to the law or to sin but we present ourselves as living sacrifices unto Jesus, which is our reasonable surface 
service. And Lord, I, I thank you that you help us to do this, that it's not by what we try to do or we try to avoid. It's by what you've accomplished through Jesus. It's this free gift, this new and living way to righteousness by grace through faith that we are born again. We are washed clean and we are purified forever. And we can be fruitful. Lord, it's just so awesome what you've done. And I pray we would praise you. We'd rejoice in you. And that we wouldn't point to our own lives as evidence that you haven't done enough. That you couldn't possibly mean what you're saying. Because we haven't experienced it. Lord, I pray we all would. That we'd experience your presence. We'd experience that power to be humbling ourselves before you. To be praising you and surrendered to you wholly so that you would be glorified and receive the, the praise for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.